the resource scarcity is already essentially abolished, you know, in practical terms, even if not in distributional terms, that is the condition of industrial abundance, and that the real question is time, you know, it's a tremendous kind of shift in perspective. Mm. And I think he, you know, like it's worth dwelling on, I think, the fact that we should be focused on time as the real scarcity, not on the scarcity of goods. In a world, like I say, of industrial production, the old question of scarcity falls behind. I think all of that is very important. Dearest of our dear patrons, the most intimate circle, welcome to the 2023 BungaCast Reading Club, Episode 2. Here we'll be focusing on three big themes, as I'm sure you already know, freedom, legitimacy, and globalization. Thanks again to everyone who has been with us in last year's syllabus and who already joined us uh, for the beginning of this year's syllabus. Um, So welcome, hello, and it's lovely to see you all. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the last episode, we've tried this year uh, by incorporating some of your comments, adapted and refocused the reading club. So you'll notice that there are fewer works and that they're longer um, when we hope you and we ourselves get more of out of it than uh, before. So the first four episodes, and this is the second of those four uh, of this year's reading club, are dedicated to Martin Hagland and his 2019 book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Uh, its UK subtitle is a bit different. It's Why Mortality Makes Us Free, but both, uh, I guess, explain what's inside. So uh, here we're going to discuss chapter four, natural and spiritual freedom, and chapter five, the value of our finite time. But before that, I'd like to say hello uh, to George and Phil and ask them what they thought of uh, of these chapters. I think they were pretty meaty, pretty central chapters. Well, yeah, I'm firstly doing well. Secondly, central chapters. Yep, literally right bang in, in the middle of the book. So um, very core, I guess, um, geographically or physically um, to the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can tell you what I thought about them or we can, we can discuss them. What, determinist, you know. <laughs> why, why are you shaking your head at that? You ask, that, <laughs> are they central chapters? Answer, quite literally, yes. Mm. It's uh I mean, it's a, it's a more technical read, I suppose, than the first earlier part of the book, um, particularly when it gets into some of the uh, Marxist political economy. Um, I'm not, you know, I'd say perhaps I'm not as perhaps uh, convinced, um, but, it, you know, given that we're midway through the book, um, you know, uh, obviously it's incumbent on us to be open-minded until the end. Um but it's still, you know, like it's still, I'm still reminded of what a kind of um, remarkably ambitious and bold book it is, given that in this section, you know, he pivots away from, uh, you know, basic kind of existential questions to very or more concrete and practical questions of economy. Um, so, yeah, anyway. I guess it is It is worth just saying that it does go from, so we did part one and now we're on to part two. And I guess given the aspiration to kind of have almost from the, the very start of what it is to be a human going all the way to democratic socialism, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, there's, you know, there is a kind of, I guess the question is, is that transition successful moving from the kind of the part one on secular faith, the kind of philosophical underpinnings to 
part two, which still very philosophical, but as Phil was saying, second part on spiritual freedom is is trying to be a bit more practical, a bit more political, a bit more social. So yeah, I think a lot to discuss in these two chapters. Okay, so um, what we're going to do here, I'm going to start off by just outlining what is in chapter four and five so that we're all on the same page. We know what was in here and maybe you read the book a little while ago and um, want to be reminded what is specifically in chapters four and five, uh, which as I say are pretty important chapters. Um, and then we will deal with your questions from the last episode, uh, some of which I think perhaps might be resolved by what is contained in chapter four and five, but we'll see uh, when we get there and then we'll proceed with the main discussion, of course. Um, before anything else, I wanted to remind you that there are local reading clubs across a range of cities in North America, Europe, and uh, Australasia. And if you would like to join one, please do get in touch at info at bungacast.com or drop us a message um, via Patreon. And we will try to put you in touch with other people. Um, there's quite a lot of reading clubs where there's maybe only one or two people and they're looking for more to join. Um, so I will post up um, on the Patreon um, a list of where there are people um, and how many more or less there are um, so that you might want to uh, see if you want to join. Um, there's people looking, people have recently gone in touch um, in uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, Atlanta, uh, the east of England, uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh, m- many other places besides, um, but also looking for other listeners around that area to meet up in person and uh, continue on the discussion or follow along the discussion or preempt our discussion even if you want to do it that way. Um, that's all up to you. So anyway, again, do get in touch, info at bungacast.com if you'd like to uh, join or start up a local reading club. Okay, so what's in chapter four and five? In chapter four, Martin Hagland argues that even non-human living beings have natural freedom. Uh, So animals, for example, engage in self-reproduction, they strive to continue to be alive despite suffering, and they enjoy a surplus of time. Um, All living beings enjoy a surplus of time, Martin Hagland contends, um, so that they have time for self-enjoyment, which is distinct from self-preservation. Um, so that means that animals might play or, you know, uh, care for themselves or whatever stuff, which is, which is beyond just mere self-preservation. They have some surplus or excess time. But Martin, Martin Hagland is at pains to portray humans as exceptional, for they are the only animals which possess spiritual freedom. And we possess spiritual freedom because we are able to ask ourselves, what should I do? Uh, which also entails the follow-on, who should I be? And then, crucially, um, particularly for Martin Hagland, what should I do with my time? Um, And that is the component. Those are the kind of building blocks of what spiritual freedom is. This spiritual freedom has moral implications, uh, he goes on to explain through chapter four, um, because what we take to be the right thing to do, the right way to act um, when presented with choices is a, a crucial part of this freedom. So for Martin Hagland, this implies not just a test of reason, but a test of faith. Um, How committed are we to the identities we have chosen? So, for example, if you're presented with a dilemma and you are a father, as well as having uh, political commitments as an activist, um, those two identities might come into uh, clash with each other. So then this dilemma will present you with a choice, one which you will have to resolve. That is uh, central to having spiritual freedom, making these choices and committing to things as ends in themselves rather than just um, doing things for instrumental reasons. For example, um, you act morally to avoid punishment from God um, or to strive for salvation. Instead, no real spiritual freedom means grappling with uh, this secular notion that we have to determine what to do with our time and that ultimately it's up to us. So this is a resolutely secular account of life in which um, one's own 
our own mortality is central. Uh, chapter five, then, is uh, a point at which the book kind of shifts in in tone, um, even in pace to a certain extent, and certainly in terms of what it deals with. Um, it's the central theoretical chapter of the book in which uh, Martin's philosophy, Martin, we're on first name terms now, uh, Hegelin's philosophical vision um, and social critique are brought together. So it ties a secular understanding of the meaning of mortality and its implication for the time of our lives which is all stuff that we saw in the last episode, and the political questions of our social organization, one which is currently, under capitalism, founded uh, on time as a measure of value, specifically labor time. So um, in this chapter, Martin Hagelin discusses Marx's view that value in capitalism is rooted in labor time. And he tries to go deeper by tying this to a philosophical position, his own philosophical position, that what is essential is the time of our lives. And that spiritual freedom means being free to decide to do with, uh, to decide what to do with that time. This, um, for Hegel, is would be an actualization of the idea of freedom developed by Hegel. For Hegel, and here I quote: "The question is whether the modern state and the market economy, um, on which it depends, are compatible with an actual or wirklich free society, an actually free society." Um, a page later, Martin Hagland goes on to say, Marx's critique is best understood as motivated by a commitment to making the idea of freedom actual, real, work, work, wirklich, <laughs> workable. Um, so then uh, just to round this off, um, he, chap, uh, Martin Hagland finishes off chapter five by running through a sort of Marxism 101, I guess, um, but it's quite an enlivening one. I'm going to ask the guys what they thought of it um, a little while on. Um, or Certainly it's a kind of... Uh, Kind of a useful introduction to Capital Volume One, actually. Um, I've, I've uh, read few, few kind of neater ones, um, so it's definitely worth it just for that. But anyway, in this, Martin Hagelin introduces the idea that the labor theory of value was not meant to be taken as a truth about human societies in general, but rather about capitalism. So Hagelin, through an engagement with Marx's Grundrisse, argues that for us to be truly free, we need to adopt a different measure of value not one based on socially necessary labor time, but on what he calls socially available free time. Um, all very interesting stuff. I hope you were able to follow that. I assume you will, you will have been able to because you've read the book. Okay, um, listener questions. We're going to deal with um, various points, which I think mainly relate to the question of religion, which of course is fitting because that's what the first half of the book deals with. Um, a lot of these questions deal with whether Hagland is um, mischaracterizes religion or religious belief or religious believers. So anyway, um, let me let me go through these. Firstly, Jacob Cart says, Hagelin bases his entire critique of religion on a fine point, the belief in eternity. He begins with examples of religious thought and shows how they are actually expressions of secular faith that are logically inconsistent with the belief in the eternal. I agree, says Jacob Cart, but when your subject is religion, pointing out a logical inconsistency doesn't necessarily win the argument. If a person, for example, is transformed by their encounter with religion in a way that causes them to value these positive expressions of secular faith, i.e. things that we value in, in real life, um, then uh, does the logical inconsistency of basing those beliefs on eternity actually matter? Or is it just a trick that we arrive at the same conclusions? Um, basically, you know, if, if believing in God makes you care for your family, then who cares if it's kind of this fake belief in God? You know, um, the important thing is that you're valuing the things that you value in in uh, temporal life. 
In a world where any action at all is anchored in an acceptance of the cognitive dissonance required to live in the end of the end of history, I'm not sure this his central objection is powerful enough to discount the act of reaching these conclusions, quote-unquote, falsely, i.e. through a faith based on the belief in eternity. Um, okay, we're going to park that just for a second unless you guys want to comment on that immediately because I think the one of the next questions touches on similar ground, so we can take them in a round. Um, Jeffrey Martin says, I haven't been able to make myself even slightly sympathetic to Hagelin's argument <clears throat> with regard to values being devalued in light of eternity, in by light of eternity or a commitment to eternity, because whatever his intention, it doesn't address the religious position on its own terms, instead mischaracterizing it and constructing an inconsistency that isn't there. So Jeffrey Martin says that religious value systems, ethical frameworks, theologies, all postulate hierarchies of values. For example, the goods of this life, including the lives of children murdered at Sandy Hook, are good because it is good to exist, to exist in relationships with parents and friends, and to develop to maturity and fulfill both individual and communal purposes, as well as the telos of belonging to human nature as such. Religious people aren't being inconsistent in mourning their loss um, because they were meant to live out their lives as bearer of divine impress, even though eternity is conceptualized as better in every respect. So the fact that one is better doesn't mean that the other isn't as good good at all. Just because you believe in eternity and that's what we're all moving towards doesn't mean that temporal life isn't important. Um, the fact that one is recognized as good doesn't mean that the other is superfluous. Absolute and relative goods can coexist. Good and better things can coexist. To posit that a belief in eternity necessarily devalues temporal life presupposes that eternity entails something like agnostic contempt for the body and its life. And while polemicists might like to indulge in such insinuations, I would suggest that the billions of religious believers of nearly countless doctrines throughout the course of human history, simultaneously valuing both this life and eternity, carry greater weight than a philosopher or polemicist asking the somewhat petulant question, if God is real, why are you mad that your child got killed? Oh, I don't know, perhaps because they love the child. And in the religious imagination, such love is a participation in divine love. Okay, guys, so uh, does Hagland mischaracterize religion? This is a tricky one, and I, you know, I have to say I had some of the same thoughts as our listeners. I don't think it's predicated on contempt in the same way. I mean, we've mentioned this before in our last episode. It doesn't have the same kind of contempt for religion that is so explicit in the new atheism of like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. Um but does it necessarily kind of involve this? So I think, you know, Hagland's point is a bit more subtle. I think what he's suggesting is like, if you want, if you wish to be theologically, you know, consistent with the theological premise of the core of all religion, and he talks and he pivots in the second part where we've, which we're going to discuss now, he pivots a bit more to Buddhism and kind of makes the same case for Buddhism as he does for Christianity in the first part of the book. And, you know, for me, he demonstrated this very well in his discussion of C.S. Lewis's devastation at the death of his wife. You know, where C.S. Lewis, who um, was, you know, very devout Christian, he said he recognized that to be, you know, a true believer, he had to accept that the afterlife was would be um, absorbed in bliss and reverence of God. You're kind of fixated and enraptured by God's love. Um, so, you know, whereas, you know, I mean, I'm sure like, you know, for 
many people, obviously religious people, the belief is that you're restored to your loved ones in heaven. And that is part of the appeal of it, part of the appeal of religion. But the at the core of the belief is, you know, C.S. Lewis points out, it is not, in fact, being restored to your loved ones. It is being um, transfixed by the love of God. Um, and that is, you know, that is what is on offer. And so I think what Hagland is saying, like he's not, you know, obviously he's not suggesting that you wave the book in in the face of um, religious, you know, parents whose kids have died. But he's and he's not suggesting that this would necessarily work on any kind of particular concrete individual. But he's saying as belief systems, you know, there is inconsistency. Um, and that this inconsistency has to be addressed and will be expressed in different ways, right? And that it does kind mm. of um, come to the surface. The thought that I had, and I might be, you know, maybe our listeners can correct me here, but one, you know, I think perhaps Mormonism, you know, might escape um, Hagland's criticism because my understand, I mean, you know, my kind of um, Book of Mormon understanding of Mormonism or Wikipedia understanding of Mormonism. So it's not a theologically sophisticated understanding of it. Um, but my understanding is like in, you know, that they, the premise of the afterlife there is that you, um, you kind of enjoy a higher, um, you know, a kind of a higher plane of existence, but it is not it's uh, the afterlife isn't simply complete absorption and transfixion transfixion transfixiation transfixion with god's love um mm. so maybe yeah. you know maybe mormonism escapes george i mean i i don't know about mormonism but i do think there is something about Hagland's account of religion which is it's kind of it's an atheist's account to the extent that it feels um yeah i mean i i, I guess i don't know enough about world religions to to exactly pinpoint what why it feels a sort of a little unsatisfying um maybe to a certain extent but it it certainly does start with this idea of eternity or this being the central kind of ethical um point of substance in in religious belief and that's obviously not the way that a religious believer would necessarily you know experience it instead it would probably be ontological there is a god there is something which exists that's the the starting point and the ethics come out of that um but that's not to say that logically Hagden's not correct to to draw that stuff um to draw that stuff out i guess in terms of jeffrey martin's um comment that there's you know you can have good and better things that there are hierarchies of various different sorts well maybe this is kind of a religious approach to to morality perhaps but i think this is exactly what Hagland would would not share i don't think this book is trying to give a a hierarchical kind of expression of ethical of an ethical system of any sort instead it's definitely in the Kantian tradition of trying to have trying to answer the question of what is the foundation what is the foundation of value of meaning is particularly without god so instead of sort of saying here are the things which are good and here are things that are better here is the thing that the reason that we have meaning and value um and an ethical system which is drawn out of some um aspects of human human existence so i mean i think yeah as phil said we, we talked about this a bit in the last episode and it's not a it's not a new atheist kind of you know assault on religious people being idiots but there is something in the you know in the structure of human existence which you know which gives us uh, value gives us meaning that's that's what hagland is is um is trying to and gives us freedom which is what hagland is trying to explore yeah very well put phil well, yes. I mean, I was thinking a bit more about kind of um, Jeffrey Martin's point. 
And, you know, I mean, if we think of examples such as like, um, you know, I mean, there are certain kind of Christian, um, you know, Christian sects, like I think it's the, um, is it Jehovah's Witness or maybe Seventh-day Adventists where they don't celebrate birthdays, for instance, right? Because to celebrate a birthday... Does that mean that there's no, there's no meaning, there's no value, there's no freedom in, in your life if you can't have a birthday, if you can't have a no, bit of cake and some no, presents? No, but no, this is, it's an... It's a serious response to the point, right? Because he's saying like that it's not necessarily premised on the idea of devaluing life in favor of eternity. But, uh, you know, I think Haglund's point is that because it's logically built into the structure of religious belief, it will express itself in institutional practice and it will express itself in the way in which religions develop over time, necessarily. So even if, you know, there are literally billions of believers who believe because they think, you know, it's just a kind of an extension of the things that they value in this life. And so I'm giving the example of like, you know, um, Christian Jehovah's Witnesses who don't celebrate birthdays because it takes away from, you know, it's kind of celebrating something which is merely a prelude to actuality, which is love of God. But there are other examples as well, right? I mean, that was the whole, you know, like um, the Protestant critique of Catholicism in the when protestantism first emerged was dispensing with saints days and dispensing with all the kind of celebrations that had grown up around medieval catholicism because they took away from the glory of god they became you know they were paganistic um mm -hmm. and not genuinely christian right or you can think of other examples say catholic examples right of like a monk the monks who kind of have to um you know flagellate themselves or deprive themselves of certain kinds of um, ordinary pleasures in order to be closer to God. So yeah. my point is that, you know, I think though I understand what Jeffrey Martin's getting at, it seems to me Haglund's point still stands, you know, even if any particular individual might be inconsistent in their belief, it doesn't mean that it will not, you know, that it, the inconsistency doesn't manifest itself. It will. Yeah. No. And I think, I mean, we've made this point before, but I'm just to repeat it. And uh, that, you know, Buddhism somehow captures the essence of what uh, Hagland is trying to critique, right? Um, yeah, he says this and, explicitly. Yeah, and in and, 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 and page 206, because I, I'm going to pull this up just because it's in part of the sections that we're discussing today, page 206, Hagland is insistent. People do not strive for salvation or death as their highest conceivable goal. Hagland is saying, hey, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that people are striving for death or salvation as their highest conceivable goal. Rather, they do value things in, in life, although religion does push us towards that kind of thing that Phil was describing of this much more um, of, of living purely for God. Um, so actually what this reveals is that ideals of eternal salvation are self-contradictory and self-undermining. This I'm quoting directly from, from Hagland. So I think... I, I kind of I think we're saying similar things. We shouldn't probably get. I don't think it's central to his argument that we get hung up on whether he's saying, "Oh, actually, religious people don't love their children" or whatever, or you know, or something like that. That isn't the point. The point is that when they love their children, it's actually a secular love, even if they believe it to be through God. So, um, just two two last questions. I don't know if we want to discuss this, but I, Eli makes a point which is slightly glib. I think glib sounding, but actually touches on something important, um, which is that, yeah, well, as he says, I always hate anything that uses death as a justification for life. Children manage to live just fine without knowing they have some impending death coming in 40 to 80 years. Hmm. 
I'm not sure that's true. I think, you know, it probably is quite, um, I think it probably is quite traumatic for kids when they're first exposed to the idea of death. And, you know, we have to come up with, you have to come up with different ways of accounting for death to kids. Um, but also like, I mean, the point is they're kids, right? I mean, they live just fine because they're, they're not adults. They're not responsible, you know, kind of, uh, autonomous people. Precisely, uh, They're not asking they're what to do with my time. They're saying, Hey, entertain yeah. me. I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instance, I mean, yeah. To go back to Kant again, you know, what is enlightenment? It's um, emancipation from our self-imposed immaturity. It's not being children anymore. So you could say that it's kind of, I guess it is a mature problem, right? To be an adult, you have to grapple with the fact that, you know, time's running out. Those sands are ticking through that sand jar clock thing. Sands but of it, time. I mean, it, it does. It does Power it glass, does, it's called. Yeah, it, it does, yeah, make, there you go. It does make you think. <laughs> Fucking hell. It does make you think, though, that, I mean, you know, so much of this is Hagelin's argument is that we should have an appreciation because there's a normative part here. It's not just that, yes, we live conscious of death all the time. No, but rather we should be conscious of our fragility because we have to value our time. Yeah. Right? We, we should be conscious of that actively, right? And the more we're actively conscious of that, the more. Uh, insistent we should be in making a world that is fit for humans that is truly free etc and not um, abandoned to the fates and i wonder i mean i think maybe you know maybe i mean eli like you say might be being a bit deliberately glib um or maybe a you know more than a bit but um it does touch upon something which is a real issue i think just i wonder whether you know hagland kind of um under underestimates perhaps how he by the clarity of his argument and the relentlessness of the focus on death as making life meaningful you know he kind of exposes gaps um kind of existential gaps which explain a lot of um modern life um but that he doesn't really account for you know because if you do live you know if you do live with a kind of appreciation of your limited time as Hagland enjoins us to, there is also a kind of constitutionally, like it opens up the possibility of other responses that are not kind of responses rooted in freedom. But, you know, it makes it easier to understand why there are kind of romantic, nihilistic responses um, that would, you know, perhaps constitute the basis for like a fascist politics, for instance, um, or why there are so many different versions of the flight from freedom and the escape of the fear of death. Mm. Um, and in a way that that is in, indeed the appeal of religion itself, right, um, is that it allows you to kind of evade the fear of death, even if it's kind of an inconsistent and mangled response. So, and as, but, uh, you know, or, at least or, just, or indeed the death drive in, in, in kind of Freudian theory, which is a, a drive towards a certain wholeness, original wholeness which will absorb us and yeah well so this is you know like he does i mean maybe he deals with this later we haven't come up to that point in the book yet but i mean it does make me think that precisely in you know the rigor and clarity of his argument he opens up kind of there are gaps opened up on his flanks which would really need to be addressed if you wish to be a fully you know if you wish to kind of have a fully consistent account of the of um of the meaning of life in the face of mortality Okay, one final question, and I don't think we'll respond to this unless you guys have something very burning to say. I'd rather just say it and let it percolate because we're going to come back to this next episode uh, and in the in the last one also where we discuss some of the secondary materials around this and kind of reflections on Hegland's work. 
the, uh, Ian Hunter says, is there a callback to the Todd McGowan episode here, um, which is one we did at the very end of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, um, in that the problem with religion in this context is its functioning as an imagined substantive authority. Isn't Hagelin's real issue the same one McGowan has, namely that we are unwilling to take responsibility for our commitments? I think that's a good question. As I said, we're going to come back to it. I j- Just really quickly, I think that's a very good question. We don't actually have to answer it, but Emancipation After Hegel was the title of Todd McGowan's book, and there's there's a lot of similarities, particularly in the two chapters we're about to discuss. So I won't answer the question, but I just wanted to correct you and say it's a very good question, in my opinion, not just a good one. All right, let's get cracking with uh, the main meat of this, chapter four and five. So just to start off, um, I'm going to run through this. I think the questions are more or less kind of sequential in, in relation to what they co- to what's discussed in the book. Of course, Hagelin does um, cover various different themes and discuss different, uh, you know, readings of different authors and thinkers. Um, so I think it's useful to kind of go through that way because there's quite lots of different aspects. So the first is, um, you know, how convincing we find Hagelin's distinction between natural freedom and spiritual freedom, which he sets up right at the start of uh, chapter four. Just to remind listeners, natural freedom is this idea of self-reproduction, um, of having a negative self-relation, as he calls it, the striving to be alive despite suffering, and to have a surplus of time. Spiritual freedom distinguished itself, however, um, by this normative aspect, by having a normative purpose of life, to ask yourself what should be the purpose of my ni- uh, life. Negative self-relation, which is something that he repeats. I wasn't entirely sure why he repeats it because he has a different meaning for that. If you, uh, listener, have or you guys, George and Phil, have any um, explanation for that, let me know. Um, but, you know, the, the ability to question who you want to be and also normative relation to the time of your life, to ask what you want to do with your time. Um, do we do we like this distinction? Is it useful? Um, how important is it to the rest of his argument? George? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's pretty difficult to disagree with this to the extent that, yes, you have things that are alive, which have some spare time to kind of uh, to, to to do something with when they're not um, reproducing their material conditions of existence. And then you have a separate category of animals, which is just humans who can question their ends. So I think it is, you know, it is important and it's not, you know, it's hard. He's hardly the, the first philosopher to, to kind of um, <clears throat> to point this out. There, I have a very minor question or very minor kind of objection and listeners who know about this might actually, I might actually be wrong, but my understanding of the amoeba yeah, you'll see where I'm going with this in in a bit. It, it, so amoebas like spend the entirety of their time self-preserving. So they are alive, but they only have like one dimension of of um, experiencing the world, and that's closer or further away from um, food. I don't know what they eat, but <clears throat> whatever it is that they eat. So an amoeba has is alive, but maybe doesn't have natural freedom because it doesn't have any time, any mm. spare time. So it doesn't fulfill that condition. So I mean, are we, if I am correct, are we prepared to throw the whole of Hagland's like philosophical um, edifice out on the, on the basis of the amoeba or, or I mean, I might have the amoeba wrong in the first place. (laughs) Well, that would be, that would be an issue. I'm sure there might be biological reason to take issue with this, but we could, you know, we could even dismiss lower um, orders of life and just say, okay, you know, kind of animals, big fauna, right? Kind of big cuddly ones that we recognize. Um, and, and say, you know, and it's very speciesist, Alex. Uh, well, I am speciesist. Yes. Um, I'm a Marxist felinist, as I've, uh, many times <laughs> said, uh, Oh my God, that's so lame. It is. Um, 
but anyway, you know, the point is about distinguishing humans from even higher order animals, more sophisticated, more complex animals, rather than to say, well, this is what all of life is like. I don't, I think it doesn't matter whether you believe plants have free time or not. Yeah, no, I've, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, a bit of a, a facetious point. But I think the, the, the basic idea that we, you know, it's a key theme in existential philosophy, isn't it? That we, like, we both <laughs> have it good and have it bad that we are kind of forced to grapple with the normative purpose of our lives and you know and the, that is basically how we spend our spend our time so it's a pretty you know pretty big responsibility to have to do this because it means that you yeah. you engage in all these kind of higher order problems um as, as a result of being a human given i think it's fairly obvious why why is it important to, to set for hegland to set this out this way um, to, you know, we're obviously humans are different from animals and we have more, you know, freedom and whatever, but you know, who cares? Isn't it obvious? Yeah. Good, uh, good question. I can't remember how he, how well, he, what is the meaning? It in, actually. You know, what did the point is about freedom? You know, what is, it's not, it's not simply the capacity to, to do things autonomously, right. Um, or to do things that aren't strictly, that aren't strictly governed or immediately governed by natural instinct, you know, such as reproducing or eating or, you know, whatever it might be. So, yeah, you know, that seems to me to, he needs to have a basis on which to be able to talk about time and how the use of that time is governed. Um, I mean, you could say more, I guess. Yeah. And start with the secular notion of, of, life so he i mean that's that's why he he does it i guess because he does want to build it very slowly maybe more slowly than i would kind of think is perhaps necessary to sort of say well okay this this um this is the understanding of life and it has these two different dimensions but for humans this shared condition then you can build up a whole set of 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 what it means to be free which all logically are entailed by this this distinction between these two different sorts of life, essentially. Mm. Yeah, I, I I mean, to answer kind of the question I set up, I, I think it's twofold. One is that he is making a humanist case against the misanthropes who not, the misanthropes don't confuse humans and animals. Um, everyone kind of tacitly knows that humans are different, but rather they misanthropes uh, or yeah, d- diminish human capacities, right? So ultimately this idea that like, yeah, humans are all just motivated by self-interest and instinct. Um, and, you know, we just go about, you know, we're aggressive beings who are egoists and so on. You know, this basic argument, which is common um, both on kind of like amongst neoliberals as well as the kind of far right, whatever it is, right? Um, And I think he does this to set up the humanist case and say, no, hang on, actually, no, what what actually makes us human and to root his case to a certain extent in in an anthropological understanding of human nature, um, even if it's a very, very basic one, is precisely this notion of, of freedom. So I think it, it, my, my interpretation is that this is a way of, um, you know, uh, kind of cutting off at the pass um, those arguments, uh, those misanthropic arguments um, from, the, from the right, which often um, emerge. So um, to, to move on, um, a question about identity, because identity is a term that crops up quite a lot. We encountered it quite a bit already through chapters one, two, and three, as well as the introduction. Um, and in chapter four, uh, Hagelin dedicates quite a lot of time to it, not really in exploring what identity is, but in developing these notions of practical identity and existential identity. So my question here is, does essence 
precede existence for Hegland? Does he make identity foundational? Like you decide what you are and who you are and then act. Um, let me just quote. For, uh, this is from page 197. Before any explicit deliberation, what appears to me as the right thing to do is itself expressive of the practical identity I prioritize and the commitment with which I keep faith. I can revise my priorities, but I cannot do so from a detached standpoint. Um, I wanted to maybe, as a way of discussing this, contrast this with Jean-Paul Sartre, who in Being in Nothingness, as well as an essay which kind of summarizes a little bit what is in Being in Nothingness, which is um, his essay, Existentialism is a Humanism, touches on a lot of similar themes, a lot of the similar concepts to what Hagelin does here. And I'm bringing in this contrast just because I think it, it they're so similar. And Hagelin doesn't refer to Sartre throughout this. So I'm kind of go, I'm wondering what's going on here. Um, Sartre says um, in, I think that yeah, from existentialism is a humanism. What is meant here by saying that existence precedes essence? It means, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards defines himself. If man, as the extension, as if man, as the existentialist conceives him, is indefinable, it is because at first he is nothing. Only afterward will he be something, and he himself will have made what he will be. Um, as he says uh, elsewhere in that essay, you are free, so choose, that is to say, invent. Um, so again, for, for Sartre, it's about what you do um, preceding who you are, right? That you are determined by your actions um, rather than having some uh, pre-existing notion of identity. Um and so again, it, so that seems kind of different from Hagelin, despite them both emphasizing very similar topics, such as spiritual freedom, the necessity of self-determination, um, not relying on um, God or any authority to decide what is good for us, and the importance of commitment, how essential commitment is for realizing freedom, not something that is opposed to it. So they're very quite similar, but yet uh, Hagelin never re references South, as I said. Um, and for Hagelin, it seems that... Uh, existential identity, at least, if not practical identity, is foundational, comes before you act. Um, what are we to make of these differences, George? Yeah, I mean, just the first thing, I think there are definite similarities. And it's almost surprising he doesn't, he doesn't reference um, either of those two Sartre texts. And it's good to kind of take them together, because existentialism as a humanism is short. I, I've read it being a nothingness much longer. I have to confess, I haven't <clears throat> read every single uh, page of that so I can just talk to the the former more but my I guess my sort of reading of this is a little bit different that he's the reason why he does this whole distinction between natural <clears throat> sorry natural and spiritual freedom is precisely so that he can sort of say this is the condition that precedes any of the choices any of the value judgments so we we are um <clears throat> I guess constituted by this this like uh, need to choose that we have this free time um, and we have to kind of put a moral and normative um, frame on on what we're going to do with our time. So I'm not I'm not sure that he does think that existence, uh, sorry, that essence precedes existence, but might be might be kind of getting that wrong, I guess. Phil, do you have anything to add to this? Because I mean, I maybe one way to approach this is to seek to define what he, uh, Hegel, or try to say what Hegel defines existential uh, identity as. Right. Um, he he discusses 
he discusses, for instance, on page 189, in reference to this idea of Neuhat's boat, which is a boat that you basically, you basically build yourself as you're going along, right? This is the, this idea that Neuhat's boat um, is your, so the boat that you are is an existential identity. And you might replace certain planks as you're going along, as you're sailing, which are changing practical identities, but that the boat that you are um, remains the same. This is the kind of a, 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 an adaptation of the no, it classical doesn't remain Greek the same, idea. But it's, huh? it doesn't remain the same, but the point is there's a limited amount of material that you can draw on to reconstitute yourself, right? So, I mean, it's not the book. I mean, the, sh the boat is different, um, but you can only use the stuff that's already there. Mm, sure. And, and I, I think the idea is that existential identity confers coherence. So he says on page 189, my existential identity does not designate the completion of who I am, but the fragile coherence of who I am trying to be. So again, you're trying to live and be faithful to, to be committed to your existential identity. And then there's various things that spin off from that in terms of your practical identities. But when do you decide on that? Um, are we already determined in our existential identity? And then we try to, and then we try to live that out. Or do we come, a, a, do we come upon our existential identity after acting? What comes first? I think, and the I'm reason that this seems like a, a philosophical, a philosophically abstract discussion, which, you know, what's yes. the point? So let me just yes. say what I'm getting at. Um, in our age of identity politics, um, but not only this, I think it's relevant um, because if we believe that, as Hagelin seems to indicate that he does, that identity is foundational, then we then it is a, an essential part of freedom to find an identity and stick to it. Um, I, that's that wouldn't be my approach. I would think you act, and then maybe you you know you an identity comes after. I'm more with Sartre on this that we're nothing as we're born, and then that we make ourselves in the world. Um, so I don't know. It, and also, and also, I, sorry. And let me just let me just elaborate mm, that a little bit further. Is that if if for, if Hagelin doesn't hold to that, an identity is foundational. It seems that we're far more determined beings than than what he seems to uh, propose, right? And that we. And by being determined, who is doing the determining? There's some authority who's saying what our uh, identity is, perhaps. I'm not. I don't really. I don't really feel the. Um, I don't really feel the need to uh, labor the point. I suppose the way you seem to, Alex. It seems to me like he's making a point about practical commitments, right? So you know, if you're involved in something and you're. Um, committed to something whether explicitly or implicitly it has you know certain things follow from that it has certain implications certain presuppositions and so in in doing that i think that you know it's a practical matter it resolves you know there's uh, the need to finesse this question is um doesn't follow it seems to me you know whether it simply is the case that if you're yeah like i say i mean if you're um involved in doing something then that answers the question right this is what you're involved in you can decide to do something differently but it's not a um it's not a you know the idea that it involves some kind of uh, that it requires some deep um prior kind of some prior something which is separate from the practical commitment doesn't seem to me to be the case yeah, I mean, I, I took it that the existential identity is the, it determines the priority of the practical identities, i.e. the things that you do, like you have to do one thing rather than the other, and what the things you choose to do, that that is 
I guess the question is, is that what determines your existential identity or is that what's determined by it? And I guess I kind of took it to be the to be the kind of you act first and that's how you establish your existential identity. So it's, mm. it's I guess it's but it's dialectical, uh, obviously, and to a certain extent that you you come with this vision of yourself or this unity that is living your life that determines the priority of your practical identities, i.e. what you do. And you kind of you, you live that out through um through kind of doing one thing and not the other. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, if it's that interpretation, I'm good with that. If it isn't, then I have some questions. Maybe one to ask Martin Hagelin directly himself, um, rather than try to resolve uh, here now, but one to put a pin in. So the next thing, and you know, if you felt anxious hearing our, us discuss uh, these questions of identity, essence, existence, experience, and so on, mm. um, that's uh, a condition of freedom. So you know, unlucky chief, you're gonna have to feel anxious. Uh, this is a point that Hegland makes repeatedly throughout this section. Anxiety is inevitable because it's the product of reckoning with our fragile mortal lives and the need to choose what to do with our time. Quoting directly from page 194, existential anxiety is at work in every form of spiritual life since it opens us to the question of what we ought to do with our time. So my question is, how do we negotiate anxiety-inducing freedom today? Um, this relates, just to, to say, to um, uh, something we discussed in episode one, right? In the first episode cov covering the introduction and chapters one to three, um, which is that does... Hagelin's diagnosis um, of kind of our unfree society not show that what he prescribes is impeded precisely by that social reality. So basically, like, um, you know, are we basically too anxious? Are we unable to act and commit to our um, to commit to our things? Are we too alienated? Um, I think something that we've discussed on this podcast before, I mean, I, or certainly it's a point that I've made is that our freedom today is highly uneven at, at, at one sense, you know, too much and too little, um, or that we have freedom of the wrong kind. We're able to choose anything we want in the market and even choose our identities on the market, but we're unable to determine the shape of our societies. Uh, you can be anything you want, but we don't have the conditions to realize those desires. Um, this seems to be for today, particularly anxiety inducing, um, but Hagelin says this is necessary and foundational as part of being free. Um, how do we negotiate this, this uh, you know, necessary, um, inevitable seeming anxiety? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's a kind of a theme of existential philosophy. Next question. You, I mean, I guess the, the question is, should we, should we look for more anxiety? Um, is this the kind of the... the right, right. I think that's, good. that's a good question, yeah. Because in some ways, yes, I guess the like I think the the problem is is not that people aren't anxious today, <laughs> because there clearly is um, some anxiety, but it's linking that to that condition of spiritual freedom and that kind of the ne the necessity of asserting kind of a, a vision of yourself in every action that you do. That's quite that probably should create some anxiety. It should feel quite weighty, but we don't have, I guess, that that direct experience of freedom um probably you know as a society it's it seems like something which we would rather disavow rather than embrace so that kind of in some ways we're not prepared to pay the price of and of that kind of existential anxiety because we've got so many other sources of anxiety which kind of crowd mm. it out so maybe yeah. we're maybe we've got the wrong sort of anxiety and we 
we just need to trade our no nice um, day to day anxiety for existential anxiety. Yeah, which is probably I think that's good. Worse. It goes back to what I said. I mean, I think it you know kind of um, it helps explain precisely why so many ways open up of avoiding that existential anxiety, and they have to be recognized as kind of trapdoors on route right? It's not enough simply to kind of say one anxiety is better than another, but also like to recognize that there, you know, that it requires kind of avoiding the trapdoors on the way. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, he, he interestingly, Hagelin kind of teases a one, one solution to anxiety, which is, uh, again, I'm quoting, even if my project is to lead my life without psychological anxiety before death, that project is intelligible only because I am anxious not to waste my life on being anxious before death, i.e., <laughs> this is my, my gloss on it, I'm able to choose to be chill. Right? I'm, still able, I'm still making a choice to basically be chill and not be anxious. Um, I think maybe that points does us that, to something. Does that work? It's yeah, a bit it like saying someone calm work. down <laughs> when they're not calm. It's like the, the one thing. Yeah. Oh, you're you're worried about. Have you tried? Uh, have you tried you not worrying? Yeah. Have you tried maybe just not worrying? Yeah. Yeah. Are you exactly. anxious? Are you anxious, Alex? Um, I'm currently not. Um, but that's because I'm recording this podcast and talking about a, a great book. How could I feel anxious? Once, once this ends, then I'll have choices in front of me, and I, I will return <laughs> to feel anxious. Um, I I think though in in seriousness, um. This ability, I guess, to choose not to be anxious without being glib about it, I think does suggest, again, this thing of if we are truly free and we're able to determine our own norms, um, you know, ideally collectively, not, but but also in terms of de- determining morality for ourselves, as long as we're committed to it um, and that we're, it's not just an excuse for um for for immorality for you know letting yourself off the hook um but you know if we're serious about that that might refocus um our anxiety towards more serious anxiety i think what phil was saying was right here um which is that you might decide actually that all these things that are causing you anxiety about feeling that you should be doing something for example right that you feel that society is telling you you should be doing something maybe your superego um, which is the channel through which a lot of this comes uh, comes through to you, uh, your superego is telling you you should be doing something. And then you realize, hang on, but I didn't choose those norms. Do I even believe in those norms? They're just something that I have received. Maybe I can determine for myself what I think we should be doing. Maybe I should be doing something else with the time of my of my life. Maybe that will provoke a very serious anxiety, existential anxiety, but it's far more profound and useful one than the anxiety you felt before where you felt you should be doing one thing, but maybe doing another thing. And you're not sure whether to choose A or B or C or D. Um, and a lot of other things are informing or determining your um, decision process. And so maybe, um, maybe, maybe Hagland is right. Maybe that maybe, <laughs> and, and Phil's gloss on it, I think maybe is right. That we need, uh, we need to, we need to choose a, a higher standard of anxiety. That's what we should be aiming for. Yeah, I think I, I can get on board with that. Um, and and again, I think just to underline one final uh, quotation from page two hundred seven: Any spiritual life must tremble with the anxiety of freedom. The attempt to eradicate all forms of anxiety is thoroughly misguided, since it seeks to eradicate the condition of spiritual life itself. I think that's right. We're not getting away from um, anxiety. And I think attempts to get away from it, again, are a little bit like those Buddhist or Stoic attempts that um, Hagelin dedicates a lot of time to criticizing in the first part of the book. Speaking of uh, Stoicism um, and Buddhism, um, there's an interesting bit. I'm maybe being a little bit 
cheeky with a reading of, of, uh, of Hegelin's interpretation of Buddhism here, but here it goes. Um, in page 205, Hegelin says, Buddhism is remarkably honest about this implication of eternal life. Extinguish your life and your attachments. So Hegelin there is making explicit what we have uh, read him as doing in our discussions of chapters one and two. Um, so in the last episode, we, we said, hang on, isn't he just basically going, hey, actually, Buddhism captures somehow the essence of religion because it's this idea of extinguish your life and extinguish your attachments. What I found interesting is that uh, Hegelin discusses the system of karma. And for me, it sounds a lot like the market. Right. Let me let me explain that out. And uh, then Phil and George, uh, please come in and tell me if I'm uh, talking broken biscuits. So um, on page 209 and 210, which is at the very end of chapter four, um, Hagland gives this example of two children uh, who are left alone in a room with valuable artwork and are told not to touch the artwork. But each child is given a different justification for why not why not to touch the artwork. One is told that there's an authority, their father or, or uh, headmaster of the school or whatever, is monitoring them and will punish them if they touch the artwork. The other is given reasonings for why uh, you shouldn't touch the artwork, which are based on ends that, you know, artwork is something to be valued, uh, you should value it, um, it should be preserved, etc. So this is good behavior as an end in itself, rather than something that is instrumental, simply to avoid punishment. Um, in uh, discussing this example, Hegland argues that um, Buddhism is the most honest religion when it comes to acknowledging the consequences. There is for Buddhism, no absolute God, but rather the absolute monitoring system of karma. The impersonal calculation of karma is able to evaluate exactly the moral worth of every deed and enact the precise retribution that is deserved. By virtue of karma, all the injustice in the world is only apparent and actually justified. Um, so Buddhist metaphysics eliminates the question of justice in favor of an absolute principle of cause and effect. That is, you behave badly in this life, you will be punished proportionately in the next life. This is kind of a, an impersonal and total system of justice. I wonder, does this is this not the market? Is this not what he maybe Hegland is no, hinting at? No, it's not. And it's not justice either. His point is it precisely kind of moves beyond that consideration. It's simply that it's there's always this perfect symmetry, right? So there is, you can't even think, really, you can't even think in terms of good and bad. There simply is kind of cause and effect. For this thing, there is a response. Um, and so it all kind of washes out as even in the end. I, don't, I mean, you know, so, I mean, obviously it's a belief system that, I mean, you could say kind of it emerges in tandem with, you know, mercantile trading city-states and what have you in northern India. But maybe there's a connection there. Um you know, kind of similar points I mean, have been I, made about I, the emergence of Greek philosophy. I'm not but I don't buy the, the idea. I'm not suggesting it is no, the market. I know, but I don't, it's analogous to it. I know, but I just don't really, I don't see it. I think it is kind of, um, you know, it is kind of a, a, a larger cosmic claim. Like he says, it is just an account of cause and effect that is of ultimately kind of perfectly symmetrical balance. But isn't um, there an extent to which it, it is not exactly like the market, but, you know, so, and I've never really thought of it this way before, but like to be the, to be a human, you must have done well previously, right? Because you're getting towards the top, you're getting yeah. towards Nirvana, you're pretty close. I, I, I think it's right. That I you think you're close Nirvana through being, if you're just a human. Well, you're closer you're than, than any other animal. Yeah. So you must have done, you must be 
doing pretty well. Like you're in the top division. You must have had a good good season last season to get promoted or to at least stay in the league. You know, you're you're not you are sort of or, or you've already been recognized as having done something that's quite good. Um so yeah, there is a Crystal sense Palace, of, basically. <laughs> yeah, you're Everton, unrelegatable. Um we'll see if we'll see if that uh, sticks um but yeah in terms of being the market i don't know because i was i was trying to help you out there a bit alex but can you really accumulate i mean i, I karma guess... you can't have a karma um i don't know choice karma circuit can you where you're just accumulating karma well, I, mean, I, get, I guess i don't know i guess the the symmetry of the market is what um struck me right and it's one similar to this karmic system where it's not about the market doesn't judge you on whether you're good or bad it judges you as a capitalist whether you innovate if you're not innovative enough then someone will overtake you you'll be that or if you don't work you will yeah, die if you if you and if you work you mean by you're the market? Paid, you, let me let me let me finish um you're no. paid in proportion to what you earn it's all very fair and equal so i what i what i and i what i would understand Hagelin's intent with this if he is doing this I, I don't know if he is um but my reading would be that if buddhism perfectly expresses religion of this uh handing yourself over to um of basically not taking responsibility for your life and the time of your life um the market is a, a much more grounded and real way in which we hand ourselves over to this impersonal arbiter which is total um totalizing and exact it's uh not revenge but you know it's just retribution in in precise proportion to uh the the, the wrong not moral wrong but the the badness that you've done yeah but it, his point is it's not that right it's not about justice and retribution or good no. and bad it simply is cause and effect well right but that is what the market is I, I struggle to describe the market without using moral language what i mean is that if you don't work hard enough not as a moral thing but you don't work hard enough you're not going to earn enough if you work hard if you work more you will earn more if you're smarter you will invent things and become rich off of it i just don't get the i don't get the need to motivate the comparison <laughs> so well, okay. that's I mean, that's uh, I don't know what that means. Um, is that a very polite way of saying you're talking nonsense? But there is an extent to which no, fair exchange is no robbery in the market, right? So you 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 get what you pay for with karma. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so it's like there's no considerations of justice. It's just like yeah, but okay. Then I would might agree with Phil. What's the implication of this, Alex? What well, motivates the comparison? Um, just be, because they are, they, it is the secular, it is the religious and the secular form of unfreedom, right? The Bo Buddhism uh, is the essential um, form of religious unfreedom, um, of, in which we put our everything towards an afterlife, towards eternity, towards nirvana, um, and give up all our attachments. And the secular form of unfreedom is our uh, prostration in the face of the market. Um, Anyway, maybe maybe one uh, to explore at the end of the book or something. Maybe we'll come back to it. Um, so let's. I think the reason it doesn't work is because the market is understood as a kind of limited sphere, right? You know, like is it's it? understood as yeah. You can make the case for expanding it, but I think everyone understands. Whereas the point about karma is that it is the cosmos itself, right? So I mean, if you're trying to say if you're you know if you're saying that Buddhism kind of is the ideological expression 
of some kind of market mechanism, which is, you know, the way I understood. I'm not sure I saying. am. No, I'm, I don't think I am saying that. No, I don't think. Then it's you're the just saying. Then you're making the case. It's an, analo- an analogy. You know, it's an analogy that it works in the same way that the market is supposed to work in some kind of schemas of it. I don't know where that gets us. Are you trying to help us? Is the analogy trying to help us explain Buddhism, or is the analogy trying to help us explain the market? Because it's, it trying, to explain, really it's to trying to explain forms of unfreedom, flights from freedom, perhaps. Anyway, let's let's park this. We'll come back to it uh, again. Maybe want to put to Martin Hagelin directly. Okay, so let, let's get to the meat, the, to the to the Marxy Hegelian meat, um, which is contained in chapter five. As I said at the start, it's a central theoretical chapter of the book, which weds Martin Hegelian's philosophical vision and his social critique. Um, so, um, interestingly, Hegelian tries makes this argument that you know, for Marx, um, our social organization is founded on time as a measure of value, specifically labor time. That's the essence. That's where value comes from, exchange value. Um, but Hagelin has this ambition to go deeper, a level deeper than Marx. Um, so, you know, Mar- as Hagelin sets it out, Marx um, goes from the surface level appearance, which um, in the economy takes the form of price, goes a level down to the essence which is the real measure of value, which is labor time. So you've got price, which is the way that, you know, what your apple costs, but um, the true measure of what uh, of the value of that apple is labor time, how much time it took to grow and to um, collect that apple and to ship it and all the rest of it. There's a third level, which is deeper, which is, again, something which is, you know, this is still with Marx, uh, a trans-historical one, a trans-historical level, which is fundamentally about the organization of the economy of time in any type of society. Um, so the time is organized in a certain way under feudalism, and it's organized in a very different way uh, under capitalism. Now, Hagelin's claim or Hagelin's ambition here is to go a step even deeper um, and to look at the conditions for spiritual life, which activities you value and how you value them. So this is Hagelin, I guess, trying to still remain, have an economic approach to things without dealing specifically with the economy um, in in the kind of fetishized sense that we understand it under capitalism. Um, Is Hagelin right that we can't get beyond these economic questions? Um, That we can't just be like, hey, under communism, there's going to be no economy whatsoever. Um, We can just, it'll be total human freedom. Um, And that the economy of time and questions of value um, will be left behind. Hagelin says, no, we'll always have these questions of economy of time and the questions of value, and that we need a different answer to them. I think it's worth saying that it's, you know, kind of, um, it is, he's making a bold case, right? Like you say, I mean, if we, you know, step back from the, you know, the kind of the um, democratic socialism and the Marxism, he's making a case about how we should think of the economy, you know, and you can think of the economy, you know, like if you're a liberal um, or kind of, you know, or a proper liberal or um, a believer in market freedom and so on, you know, you think the that a, a particular kind of economic organization, the market will bring you certain kinds of goods that other kinds of economic organization won't. Um, and these goods will be understood generally in terms of consumption, right, and standard of living. So 
um, you know, whereas he's suggesting it should be understood in terms of time. And I think that, you know, is a good, you know, it's a good kind of shift, right? Um, so I think that in itself is kind of worth, you know, that in itself is um, worth stressing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, maybe I'm getting a little bit too deep into this, but it, there's a, an interesting, I guess, contrast. Um, and he references this in one of the footnotes um, about uh, Moshe Postone, who is one of the um, most important thinkers, yeah. Marxist thinkers on time and who's um, made the question of time very central to his interpretation of Marxist thought. And uh, Hagland takes that on but interestingly has a sort of different answer to Postone. So he um, says, you know, it's basically not abolishing value, but about revaluing value. And I think that's all um, very neat. I'm struggling with a way to, to actually uh, approach this question without getting too um, deep into, into Marx's logical um, discussion. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the, the idea that finite um, lifetime, this is the, the kind of the starting point, um, not just of, of freedom, but also of, I guess all economic activity. Yeah, there is there is I think something quite appealing in that. Obviously this isn't the 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 terms in which Marx articulated it and there is something which I don't know which I do I am a little bit uncomfortable with I guess. I I mean it's a long long time since I've read Postone and I probably didn't understand uh, all that much of it when when I did, but the idea that you can sort of move towards this quantification of of freedom it, it's obviously that's required for socially necessary labor time i.e how much time has gone into as a, a societal level into producing a commodity and it has to be something that's that's quantitative in the, in that so that you can exchange to commodities but the the kind of it seems like it's it's moving quite central this concept of time which isn't the you know there must be some um change in the in the political consequences putting that as central as Postone or um, as Hagland do, because that's obviously not the, you know, in the Marxist tradition, it's fairly recently that that's come to be kind of inserted um, as the kind of the foundational, um, what is, I guess, conceptual plank time. Right? I don't so know, this that's is right. I mean, it's at the core. It is, he's right that it's at the core. I mean, Postone makes a few extra, you know, he makes a few extra claims in my understanding but I mean, you know, Marx is very explicit about it, not only because of the claim that socially necessary labor time is the basis of understanding the economy, but also he says very explicitly, you know, like the economy of time to, to this, all economy reduces itself. And it's, um, you know, it's profoundly true. And but it's why labor productivity is such an important aspect of um of the whole dynamic of uh, Marxism itself, right? But of course, Marx, us... but Hegelin's reading of, of Marx is precisely one that emphasizes that this question of socially necessary labor time is particular to a particular to a specific form of social organization, to capitalism. That socially necessary labor time is not a trans-historical facet. Yeah, he's all... right about that. But that's yeah. not. I don't think you know. That's it's not. It's not a you know eccentric. It's not an eccentric interpretation. Look, I think it's a very good, you know, I mean, there's for those who are, you know, who are unfamiliar with the, um, you know, with the kind of um, the lineaments of Marxist political economy, I think it's an excellent kind of summary and introduction. I think in terms of what the question you were asking, Alex, about the, um, you know, whether or not these questions remain in different types of society, I think they do. They wouldn't necessarily be understood 
compartmentalized in a separate kind of domain called the economy and a separate domain called the market. But my understanding, at least, is that they would simply be absorbed into ordinary human activity so that under certain social conditions and in capitalism that there is the necessity of these compart you know that social life becomes compartmentalized into different domains and it's those domains that separation that is suspended it's not that the questions are ultimately suspended mm. even in you know even in kind of conditions of um you know star trek style levels of superabundance and technological sophistication there would still be an underlying you know substrate of um material questions that had to be resolved even if it's kind of computers doing it but you know you would still need a basic infrastructure yeah. of resolving certain kinds of material questions yeah i mean just on a personal note i found it a little bit more concrete than some of the sort of value theory stuff in terms of um the the free society that it posits is one that isn't just in beyond economy and it's also not beyond the state and beyond value you know it's quite explicitly about reformulating economic questions transforming the state and revaluing yeah. value so it's not that well it's i don't know that we can answer the question i don't know that we can answer the question on this because he's very explicit about the idea that the state has to remain yeah which is we'll, you know we'll kind of we'll seems to, to be yeah, so we'll, I mean, this is, I presume this is resolved in the latter part of the book, so we'll come back to it. But it does seem to be his emphasis on it, and it does seem to be at odds with the classical idea of the withering away of the state. Yeah. Um, the last two questions, just want to find a different way to poke at this question and to look at the link between Hegelin's philosophical vision and the uh, social critique in the in the second half, because... Um, there's the, you know, time obviously is the thread that ties it together. It's extremely elegant. You know, it's kind of at certain moments as he passes from one to the other and goes, you know, goes from this question about mortality through to suddenly talking about Hegel and Marx. You're like, wow, shit, that was really cool. <laughs> that was really cool how you did that. Um, I wasn't expecting that or I was wondering how you would get from one to the other, right? Because they seem like questions which don't really relate to one another. Um, so I thought that was very neat. Um and I think there's a you know a basis for this in that you know time is ultimately the only true scarcity. We will all die. Um, but w one thing that I wondered, I made several notes in the margins going through about three or four times. Um, is Hagland correct in his argument in which he bases the um, social time scarcity on individual time scarcity? So let me unravel that because that's not the clearest way to put it. Yes, obviously we as individuals die. And therefore, the time of our lives is what is of ultimate value to us, what we do with our time. But can you jump from that individual time scarcity, that we are mortal, we will die, to society as a whole? Society's time is ultimately, essentially, limitless and eternal, at least until human annihilation. Um, he says, you know, the originary measure of value is therefore your finite lifetime. Your finite lifetime. You as an individual. That's on page 219. So I mean, is he right? I, I, I'm I'm trying to struggle with this question because his whole um prem his whole thing is that okay, economy of time is important because that's something that that organizes society. But society's time isn't um, finite. Or only our individual times yeah. are finite. I mean, this, I guess this is the question, right? Is but it, it it would be finite because there's only a finite number of people in a society, and there the each of those finite individuals has a finite amount of time. So it is a it is a multiplication of two two finite uh, numbers, even if it can <laughs> stretch on. I guess the you know I think there is, yeah, 
society does have a scarce amount of time like because at the individual level we are all it is it is scarce for each one of us so i think it does follow logically that the um this is the one thing that we cannot um we cannot make more of at the individual level because it has to be embodied energy it seems like we have um possibilities well, we to can create make more of it at the individual level you know don't smoke kind of you know i mean certain follow certain kind of they're aware you know like watch look what you're doing when you cross the road you know like i mean there are all sorts of ways we can um you're not going to live forever if you just don't smoke and watch and look both ways before you cross the road i mean it's still i guess you, know you can I mean, you George. can have incremental the point have is, incremental gains but it's still it's still scarce for what we want to do with it which is all of these projects that we have and it always will be because there are so many different um, yeah competing as long as death like lives that we want yeah, to live as long as death as long as you know as long as we're meaningfully human and we die yeah um yeah. yes that's true my point is but, though the point is this right so i think it i think he understates how significant the shift is um you know like i say so if you think shift. of like lionel robbins well so you know the ba- the basis of kind of the neoliberal understanding of economics resource you know that we um that economics is the discipline concerned with resource scarcity how do we um achieve certain kinds of outcomes of the greatest efficiency given that we have limited resources and so much flows you know so many negative things flow from that basic understanding of um, understanding of society as kind of conditioned by strict resource limits, you know, it's uh, in many ways, you know, like it's it is the basis of a revived Malthusianism, um, and that under you know that is what you know leads to people thinking in terms of opportunity costs and um, you know that it's all about kind of tangible kind of resource constraints, but to rethink you know to reconceive it much more dramatically is not only to accept a world which is premised on industrial abundance, so that, in fact, that we do have the basis for, um, you know, that there isn't, the resource scarcity is already essentially abolished, you know, in practical terms, even if not in distributional terms, that is the condition of industrial abundance, and that the real question is time. You know, it's a tremendous kind of shift in perspective. And I think he, you know, like it's worth dwelling on, I think, the fact that we should be focused on time as the real scarcity, not on the scarcity of goods. In yeah. a world, like I say, of industrial production, the old question of scarcity falls behind. And that this mm-hmm. is, you know, Marx's claim from the ninth from the nineteenth century, you know, so before you even reach the levels of kind of industrial superabundance that we have in the twentieth century. So I think all of that is very important. Um where I would, you know, where I think maybe, you know, there's kind of a um a problem with the way in which Hagland formulates it is, you know, this kind of question of the individual or the individual, or sorry, not the way Hagland formulates it, but maybe that we were talking about it is, you know, so society is the machine that determines what we do with our time in all sorts of ways. Right. And that is unavoidable. Um, And so to that degree, like, you know, how your time will be spent is socially determined. And in this, in the case of capitalism, obviously determined by the market. Hmm. So just chatting this through has actually been helpful in kind of making, maybe helping me understand what what my slight reservation is here. I guess the question that I've been thinking about is, but is, okay, so we have scarce time, but is it too scarce for freedom? It doesn't actually, no, it's limited 
and it is scarce in one sense, but it's not. I mean, because this is the, the the premise of a lot of, as you're saying, Phil, neoliberal economics is that there are so, some things which are basically too scarce for us to be free or for us to to live in any way other than this or that constrained way. But actually, time is not one of these things. It may be the foundational kind of uh, scarcity to, on which all economics is um, is premised, but it's not too scarce for us to be free because we still have enough time to live the lives that would constitute mm. free lives. So I think... There is something there that it's like, it, if it's the basis of all economics, then what is the what limit is it is is it putting on on the on what we can produce or what we can have? Because in a neoliberal model, it is like, yeah, here are your inputs. You can have this range of outputs, but you you know you can't go beyond this. These are objective limitations on on you know what we can do as a society. All right, so um. A lot of these questions here are already pointing to what is in chapter six and then the conclusion. Um, so I don't want to maybe dwell too much on it. Um, a lot of this stuff will have to leave at slightly loose ends um, because we'll have to come back to that in next week's, uh, next month's discussion. Um, getting my time all, uh, all confused there. But just to round this out, I wanted to maybe challenge us to say, um, to, to, to kind of explain out a, a phrase, a sentence, which is really central um, in terms of Martin Hagelin explaining what he's trying to do in this book. So let me say this and then uh, challenge us to unpack this phrase. Martin Hagelin emphasizes that we must, quote, analyze the conditions of intelligibility for any economy of spiritual life, which rests on distinguishing the measure of value in the realm of necessity and in the realm of freedom. Okay, um, that's kind of wordy. So I think that's why I think it's worth unpacking as a way to conclude this episode. Yeah, I mean, so I think the, and I hope, you know, hopefully I'm not jumping too far ahead in terms of the argument, but it, so I think this kind of counterposition, the very kind of sharply polarized counterposition between um, the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom is itself kind of problematic. Um, you know, so he gives the example of walking to the well, right? If you have to spend so much time devoting yourself to meeting certain kind of, um, basic material conditions then obviously you've got less time to um to do other things and that is itself kind of an oppressive condition to be in and that's true um but at the same time like you know i mean you could think of you know maybe i mean in his example is like some kind of primitive village where you know there you, you don't have piped water um you know but maybe like i mean maybe you know the family goes to the well or the you know, the uh, the children go to the well and that is how the children get to know each other. You know, and that's how the children are socialized and maybe they enjoy it. You know, and maybe it's the basis of like um, kind of um, forming their identity and their relations within the family. So they just bloody I mean, love you know. going to the well, like on a Saturday. <laughs> this episode in which Phil justifies child labor. <laughs> I'm op I realize I'm opening myself up here to certain kinds of, you know, like um, glib insinuations but my point is like you know so i would i would i suppose you know deploy a gorovich critique of of Agland here um where the point is it's not about kind of so much the sharp it's not a, it's not as if you can you know it's two realms necessary and free and one is about suppressing is simply about you know hydraulic theory of suppressing one in favor of the other but rather that they're inter you know they're interdependent and interrelated 
Okay. And so, and really that freedom, yeah. let me, well, let me finish. So that freedom is about the embrace of necessity. So you can't also being free is not simply kind of autonomously choosing what to do with your time, but also um, being able to freely accept and undertake the things which you have no choice but to do, right? So embracing the realm of necessity, it's the leap from necessity as Engels put it, right? It requires the acceptance of necessity as its basis. And I think he I think he understates that. Mm. I think that's all good. Last word, George, and then I'm gonna finish off. Yeah. Oh no, I just thought as a Hegelian he would he uh, Hagland, I thought there was a possibility that he might flip things on on their head a little bit and go for that kind of um you know you need to embrace necessity it's not just about the realm of freedom and you know subtracting from one yeah, another he might do later i mean other i mean because it's yeah i mean that's a kind of um in some ways that it's the easy option to just say have less necessity more freedom and to kind of to, to recognize the he does say that, that they're inseparable but distinguishable but to to say that you know freedom is in the thing that you think it's not in that that you know that's i guess that's more of a mcgowan kind of modern hegelianism than a, a hagland one but i'm sure we'll come on to all these things okay so I'm, I'm actually glad that we went there because it's uh this is kind of what i wanted to finish on to throw this out there um as something to uh, percolate in your minds and ours until the next time which is um is hagland's uh, the way that hagland discusses uh, socially necessary labor time and his idea of socially available free time, um, the contrast between the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom. How does does that uh, maybe suppose a sort of anti-work or post-work idea, something that we've discussed many times on this podcast? Um, does it even resolve into, or how would we evaluate a lot of the discussions around degrowth that we've had a lot on this podcast in light of those things? Um, something to uh, leave with you um, as we finish off the second episode of The Reading Club. Once again, if you'd like to join a local reading club, if you'd like other people to join yours, if you want us to put in touch with other people, get in touch with us, uh, info at bungacast.com or message us on Patreon. We hope you've enjoyed this. We look forward to your questions and criticisms of this episode, which we will again deal with at the start of episode three, which uh, just to remind you deals with episode, uh, chapter six and the conclusion of Hagelin's book. And there'll be one more uh, episode in uh, in the fourth section of this uh, dedicated to uh, reflections, wider reflections on uh, Hagelin's work. All that to look forward to over the next two months. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, being with us in this reading club uh, in particular. I hope you've enjoyed it. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>